Have you ever known someone to believe in something so firmly that no amount of evidence, science, or reason could convince them otherwise? In the year 2019, National Geographic reported a special documentary on a fast-growing movement in America and expanding to every major country in the world. Although initially their claims may sound a bit unconventional, to say the least, a recent survey showed this growing group of people makes up about 2% of the American population, which is no small number, about 6.5 million people, and this group is still growing. One interviewee said, I've never seen anything grow this fast. Within 10 years, the numbers that are growing are going to be astounding. Even high-profile athletes, A-list celebrities and commercial airline pilots are getting on board, and this group of people are known as the Flat Earthers. Flat Earthers. You guessed it. They believe in the 21st century in year 2021, contrary to hundreds of years of science and satellite imagery and photos from space, that the Earth is flat. That the idea that Earth is round is an illusion. That NASA, the academia, and the American government has been lying to us about space travel, landing on the moon, about space galaxies and space stations and space explorations, uh, that all of this is just a controversy. Now, before you completely dismiss these people, what the flat earthers are rejecting is the well-accepted theory that the universe began 14 billion years ago in an event called the Big Bang, along with various socially accepted scientific theories namely evolution, etc. My point and question for you this afternoon is, what would convince you to believe against something that you have known all your life to be true? Against reason, against science, against common accepted knowledge. Uh, just to be clear, I don't support flat earthers. But doesn't this make you think, what is truly reliable? What is absolute truth? Because in one sense, when it comes to Christianity, the faith that we all claim to profess today, if you're a Christian, so much of what the scriptures presents as truth requires faith, which is oftentimes beyond reason, beyond rationality. And that is why it's all the more important we understand that scripture is not left open for various interpretations. Why correct exegesis, the proper and right interpretation as the author intended it to be understood, is absolutely necessary for Christians. Amen? In our passage this afternoon from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24, Jesus confronts various people in various relationships in order to teach them God's truth. Or as it says in John 7, 24, to not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So how can we, as Christians, living in a world overrun with countless theories and conspiracies, controversies, philosophies, and interpretations, know God's truth and speak God's truth and judge with God's truth? Simply, know who Jesus is and know what he came to do. We're continuing our study through John's gospel, and we're focusing on the seven I am sayings of Jesus and its relevant passages until the end of the year 2021. It's been fascinating to see how Jesus consistently showed himself he was more than just a mere man, that he was more than just a good teacher or a prophet through the signs that he displayed for all to see. But 
Through his sayings, through his teachings, Jesus would disclose more clearly his identity and his mission. And however, whereas Jesus' signs brought people together, Jesus' signs drew tons of thousands of people together, his sayings divided people. Of course, those who heard his teachings were generally amazed and astounded, the scripture says. They had no problems with his works, yet it was his words which the people found unacceptable. His sayings drew his, drew his people, those who had ears to hear, those who were called by God to himself, but those who are not of him were offended. They followed Jesus superficially, but when his sayings were too hard for them to receive, they turned back and they no longer walked with him. That's what we saw in our passage from last week, John chapter 6, 60 through 71. Uh, Today, as we pick up in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24, where Jesus, in one of the most unusual yet astounding ways, teaches us God's truth by teaching us again who he is and what he came to do. So the question for us this afternoon is, how do we know that Jesus is the truth? How do we know that he's not a phony? How do we know Jesus is not fake, but the real deal? From our passage, I want to share with you four ways how Jesus taught God's truth. Four ways how Jesus taught God's truth. Here's the outline so you know where we're headed. Point number one from verses one through nine. Jesus is the son who came to do the father's will. Jesus is the son who came to do the father's will. Point number two from verses 10 through 15. Jesus is the Messiah who came to fulfill God's words. Jesus is the Messiah who came to fulfill God's words. Point number three, from verses 16 through 18, Jesus is the word who came to reveal God's glory. Jesus is the word who came to reveal God's glory. And finally, from verses 20 through 24, Jesus is the Sabbath in whom we can rest in God's law. Jesus is the Sabbath in whom we can rest in God's law. If you didn't catch all that, I'm going to repeat myself. Don't worry. I pray that as we meditate on this very meaningful and significant passage that we would know, come to know and believe more firmly a truth that is beyond and better than human reason. That our faith in Jesus would be strengthened because we see Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the anointed one of God, in whom we have salvation, new life, and eternal life. That in growing in understanding of Jesus' identity and his mission, we'll learn to judge and discern the world with right judgment. Amen? So let's turn now to our text Follow along as I read and keep your Bibles open for the duration of the entire message so you know that this is God's word and not man's words. John chapter 7 verses 1 through 24 says this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. 
While some said he is a good man, others said no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowds answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. How do you know Jesus is the truth? Point number one, Jesus is the Son who came to do the Father's will. Jesus is the Son who came to do the Father's will from verses 1 through 9. So look with me again to verses 1 through 4. It says this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the uh, Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Some time had passed since the events of John 6, the feeding of the enormous crowds, and the discourse that followed the event when Jesus taught, I am the bread of life. It says Jesus remained in Galilee, away from the Jewish officials who were seeking to kill him. It's recalling the growing hostility of the Jewish leaders uh, from John chapter 5 who were threatened by Jesus by his growing popularity and his teachings. Specifically, in Jesus breaking the Sabbath laws and Jesus calling God his Father, which they considered blasphemous. It says, the Feast of Booths, or in a different translation, perhaps, Feast of Tabernacles, was at hand. For context, in the Old Testament, according to the Jewish tradition, uh, there are three annual feasts in which all males of Israel were required to attend in Jerusalem, the capital of the nation, where they would go to offer worship in the temple. Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the spring, a Feast of Weeks, or the Pentecost in late May, and Feast of Booths, Tabernacle, or in the Hebrew word, Succoth, in September or October. Uh, it was an eight-day feast recalling Israel's dwelling in huts or tents during their years of wandering in the wilderness after the exodus uh, from Egypt. And this feast uh, was celebrated by erecting temporary three-sided huts or booths made of branches where the Jewish people would temporarily, uh, temporarily reside for eight days of the feast, offering up prayers and sacrifices in the temple in remembrance, again, of God's dwelling with them through their wilderness wanderings. Well, it was during such an occasion our passage takes place, and the dialogue between Jesus and his brothers ensue. If you are curious how it is that Jesus, born of a virgin, has brothers, we can rightly assume Joseph and Mary, who are the earthly parents of Jesus after the birth of Jesus, were married after their betrothal, a period of their engagement, and had other children. Hence, these brothers were technically Jesus' half-brothers. At any rate, in verses 3 through 5, an interesting dialogue between Jesus and his brothers take place. 
the brothers, encourage Jesus to leave Galilee, to go to Judea, in order that Jesus' disciples will see the works he is doing. They most likely have heard or seen, perhaps, how the recent discourse regarding Jesus' exhortation for his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood in the previous passage had turned many disciples away. The crowds of the thousands who had followed Jesus had dwindled down to a few. And so Jesus' brothers, in somewhat of a disingenuous concern, suggests Jesus to go to Judea during the Feast of Booths, where everyone from all over uh, the country will be gathered, and for Jesus to show his miracles so that he may gain or regain a bigger following. That's why in verse 4, they say, For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They're saying, Jesus, brother, if you want to gain yourself some serious notoriety as a teacher and a prophet, go to the center of the city. That's the place to do it. But the author is very clear. What the brothers intended was not for Jesus' welfare at all, but ultimately for his harm. That's why verse 5 emphasizes, for not even his brothers believed in him. You see, in their unbelief, Jesus' own brothers failed to understand Jesus' mission and much more failed to understand Jesus' identity. Although it may have been well-intended, they wrongly displaced their own worldly ambitions onto Jesus for celebrity and notoriety, perhaps for their own gain. When in contrary, Jesus had zero interest whatsoever in any of that. To gain a bigger platform, to amass some sort of religious rebellion, to prove himself as some miracle worker, Jesus was not interested. No thank you. The irony, of course, is that Jesus' brothers, much like the superficial disciples, who were so willing to follow Jesus only to experience Jesus' works, was willing to believe in Jesus and what he was capable of doing, miracles, yet they failed to understand the significance of the signs. And more importantly, failed, again, to see Jesus as the Messiah of the signs. But perhaps what is most unfortunate, even heartbreaking, in the brothers' insistence for Jesus to go to Judea to show off the miracles is the wide-known fact that Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Jesus. And Judea was where all the Jewish leaders were gathered. They couldn't have been ignorant of that fact, as verse 13 tells us, that for the fear of the Jews or the leaders, Jewish leaders, no one spoke openly of Jesus. So we see how potentially destructive even the well-intentioned advice of unbelief can be so contrary to God's will, even if coming from Jesus' own brothers. But Jesus is clear about who he is and what he came to do. Jesus is the son who came to do the Father's will. Jesus wasn't motivated by a personal agenda. Jesus wasn't interested in man's ambitions. This is what he meant in his response to his brothers in verses 6 through 9. Take a look. My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. In responding in such a way, Jesus meant to express two important realities, two important truths. First, Jesus was telling his brothers the time for going to Jerusalem for him to be lifted up and to be displayed for all to see had not yet come. The irony, again, of course, is that Jesus had an entirely different type of attention in mind, him being lifted up, 
him being displayed for all to see, him showing all of Israel the greatest sign, the greatest work yet to be shown, is for him to offer himself to a cruel death on the cross as a substitute sacrifice. You see the strange irony? Jesus was saying the time for him to be killed by the Jewish leaders was not yet come. Secondly, it was Jesus' loving rebuke to his brothers. Jesus says, my time has not yet come, but yours, your time is always here. I don't know how many times I have personally misused this verse, especially the second part. Your time is always opportune. Your time is always here. Well, we got to get this correctly. I thought, and I understood this verse to mean, it's always the right time to do God's works. That's how I used it and heard it used. But that is the wrong interpretation. What Jesus was saying to his brothers here with the statement, your time is always here, was to tell them that they were of the world. Whereas Jesus was hated by the world, since they were one with the world, had no reason to be cautious as Jesus was for the time being. Moreover, their intentions for Jesus was evil because they spoke to him from unbelief and it was contrary to God's will, you see. It was worldly and carnal because they were not of God. They were of the world. They had no faith. They acted in unbelief. They were workers of evil. Brothers and sisters, isn't that so true? Have you ever experienced when your unbelieving family members gives you advice so contrary to Scripture, opposing of God's will? For me, like many of you, following God's will for my life had tremendous consequences in regards to the relationships with my family. When I told my family years ago that I wanted to be a pastor, Basically, my parents disowned me, told me I was brainwashed, told me I was wasting all my money spent on education, and I was abandoning my filial duties. How has following Christ affected your relationship with your unbelieving family members? I wonder if you, like Jesus' brothers and the superficial disciples, also seek the miracles of Christ, the works of Christ, the flashy things of Christianity, the gifts, the lights, the popular things of following Jesus rather than the greatest miracle of Jesus' cross. What I'm saying is to follow in Jesus' footsteps is ultimately to follow him in death. Death to our own agendas. Death to our own pride. Death to our own entitlement. Death to our own comforts, our fame and glory. But to do God's will as his children, just as Jesus, the Son, came to do the Father's will. Amen? What an encouragement for us to know today that you and I, if we confess that we are followers of Christ, children of the one true King, that we are not alone. That even though our earthly family members have rejected us and abandoned us for following Jesus to do God's will, we have a spiritual family of brothers and sisters here in this family of God and beyond to serve, to grow, and lean into together. Amen? I know even in my own life, I have spiritual brothers and sisters who know me and love me and care for me even more than my own blood brother and mother because we are related by a bond thicker than human blood. We are united by the Redeemer's blood. How might you consider serving and encouraging a fellow brother or sister in Christ today to follow Jesus' lead and to do the Father's will because Jesus is the Son who came to do our Heavenly Father's will? Point number one. Point number two, how do you know Jesus is the truth? Point number two, Jesus is the Messiah who came to fulfill God's mission. Jesus is the Messiah who came to fulfill God's mission. 
Look with me to verses 10 through 15. Again, let me tell you, keep your Bibles open and look at it with me. Verses 10 through 15 says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one speak openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? In saying, Jesus went up to the feast privately after his brothers had gone. It's not to show Jesus was being in any way deceptive or misleading his brothers or making a big deal out of nothing. Jesus never said that he was not going to the feast forever or at all. He meant, again, he would not go up to Jerusalem to draw attention to himself in the way that his brothers were suggesting. The time for his killing, the time for his substitute sacrifice had not yet fully come. Verse 11 now pans from Galilee to Jerusalem where the feast is taking place. Surely there are mutterings of Jesus among the people. As thousands of people have seen his mighty miracles and heard his amazing teachings, so they are naturally looking for him all around. There were rumors about him, debates uh, going around about who he was. Some said, Jesus, man, he is a good man. Some said, Jesus, man, he is leading the people astray. But the profound significance of these verses, which is so easy for us to miss, is in the midst of these mutterings, and even in the midst of perhaps our confusion regarding these verses, Why did Jesus make a big deal about not going? Then he goes in private, and then he's teaching in the synagogue. Surely that isn't very private. What in the world is going on? Well, this is why you need biblical theology. Understanding the Bible in its context. Knowing how to read each passage of Scripture and how it fits into the grand narrative of the entire Bible. And how that is so very helpful for us. So let me give you some context, all right? Back in Ezekiel 34, you know this passage very well. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, prophesies against the shepherds of Israel and their sins against his own people. How the shepherds of Israel have neglected to feed their sheep by feeding themselves. How they slaughtered the sheep for their own gain. How they have not strengthened the weak sheep. How they have not healed the sick. How they have not brought and sought the sheep who have strayed and scattered. How they ruled with harshness. How none searched them out. So God promises and promised, because my sheep have become a prey, and have become food for the wild beasts, God says, I will be their shepherd. I will seek out my sheep and rescue them. I will gather them from the countries. I will feed them with good pastures. I will seek the lost, bring back the strayed, and bind up the injured, and strengthen the weak. And God says in Ezekiel 34, verses 23 through 24, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them, and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Then in Malachi 3, verse 1, another prophecy. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Brothers and sisters, These prophecies were written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth and after King David's death. Yet here, while all of Israel had gathered for the Feast of Tabernacle in remembrance of God's dwelling with them in the wilderness, here is Jesus, God the incarnate, God embodied in the flesh in the midst of their seeking, suddenly appearing. 
This is what the author of the gospel, Gospel John, meant in John chapter 1, verse 14, when he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or in the Hebrew original word, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This is why here in John chapter 7, verse 14, it says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. What was happening was the exact fulfillment of the prophecies I just mentioned. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised shepherd of God who would gather his scattered sheep and feed his sheep and strengthen his sheep. Jesus is the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah of God to suddenly come into his temple to declare the covenant of God to his own. Furthermore, Jesus is the new and greater David whose kingdom would not have an end. Jesus is the Messiah who came to fulfill God's mission. Amen? It says in verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? How is it that Jesus, who had no formal training, who had no learning, who never studied Jewish laws, spoke with such authority and power and wisdom and insight into God's word? Because Jesus is the incarnate word of God who tabernacled among us. So what does Jesus fulfilling God's mission mean for you and me? Brothers and sisters, we should be reminded that God keeps his word. That his promises and his prophecies to send us a shepherd who will gather us, protect us, feed us, heal us, and lead us is indeed here. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never disappoint us. He will never fail us. He is and always will be faithful and good to us because we are his own. The work that he has begun in us, he will bring to completion. He is trustworthy. He knows what and all that we need. He sees and sympathizes with our ills and our weaknesses. His love will never be separated from us. He strengthens us when we are weak. He is for us and not against us. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our King. He is our all. What can man, what can circumstances, what can situations do to me? How can life and all its troubles hinder me when the path I'm walking on is Christ, the straight and narrow path to God the Father? Amen? Brothers and sisters, let this remind you, if you are experiencing doubt, frustrations, pain, depression, loneliness, or addiction, what does your devotion to God's Word, your daily reading and studying of God's Word, reveal about your dependence on Him this afternoon? What does your obedience of His words show about your faith? What does your reliance on prayer and discipleship of fellow church members testify of your need of Him and others for your faithful walk as Christians? These are ways you can turn to Jesus who made a way for you. So I invite you this afternoon to remind you to come to Jesus who is calling your name today. Surrender to Jesus whatever burdens you come here with today by committing to read His word this week. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5 says, Surely our griefs he has borne and carried our sorrows. He, in turn, was stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills God's mission. Do you cling and do you trust in his words today? Point number two. Point number three. Why is Jesus the truth? Jesus is the Christ who came to reveal God's glory. Jesus is the Christ who came to reveal God's glory. Verses 16 through 18, it says this. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me, uh, sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. These verses could actually go with the previous point because it all works together to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah who fulfills God's mission. But I wanted to emphasize a point and draw a particular application from these verses, hence a separate point, that Jesus is the Christ who came to reveal God's glory, that Jesus is the only way through which we can know, live, and love, and obey God's will and purpose fully. We simply cannot see God for who He is without Jesus. The Bible simply does not make sense without the lens of Christ. We can't see God's glory, in other words, without Jesus. We believe in Jesus the truth because thousands of years of Christian history, Old Testament and the New Testament, proves Jesus to be the Messiah come to fulfill God's mission. That's why it says in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. You see, no other book in history has been scrutinized, burned, banned, and censured more than these 66 books of the Holy Bible. Yet it remains still today and every year to be the best-selling book in all of history and all over the globe. Why? Because this book testifies of Jesus the Christ. I've mentioned several times before that history itself cannot deny the influence and impact that Jesus had and has continued to have in this world. There is no denying whatsoever that Jesus was indeed the most influential person to ever live on earth. Yet Jesus in his life, in his death, his teachings, and in the core theology of his followers, for you and me, is what? Is humility. It's never dominance. It's never oppression. It's never kill everyone else and force them to be our slaves. That's another religion. Jesus, from start to finish, from beginning to end, lived, died, and taught to reveal God's glory. Hallelujah. Jesus says in verse 16 through 18, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of Him who sent Him is true. And in Him there is no falsehood. In other words, Jesus proves himself to be the Christ, the promised Savior of the world, because only he and he alone was able to accomplish the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, every religion of the world aims to obtain the righteousness of God. And Jesus did by only and fully by subjecting himself to God's will entirely. One of the most compelling evidences of the veracity of Christianity is that there is no other religion like it. Christianity is singularly unique. Every other religion is about man's attempt to get to God, man's attempt to be the Savior, the Christ, man's attempt to obtain God's righteousness on their own, to reach glory for themselves. Buddhism, Mormonism, even Catholicism, even Pentecostalism, to a certain extent, is all about salvation by works. Man trying to get to God, but Christianity is the truth that God came to man. Islam cannot even fathom it, you see, that God in Christ Jesus obtained righteousness on our behalf in order that we may know God fully in all of his glory, that Jesus was the key to God's glory all along, that creation, fall, redemption, and glorification all pointed to Jesus as the centerpiece, the cornerstone of our faith in which all things hold together. 
As the superficial disciples and every other religion in the world asks, what must we do? Jesus says, it's done. This is God's work. All you have to do is believe. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. That God's truth has been made known to us in Jesus Christ. That God's purpose has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That God's word is completed in Jesus Christ. That God's salvation is possible only in Jesus Christ. Every other religion offers no guarantee. They live their entire lives dependent on their own righteous works. They have no certainty of heaven, you see, of eternal life. They have no assurance of salvation. What looms over them is the fear of death an eternity of nothingness and meaninglessness. They can give themselves their whole lives to their religion, yet it may amount to nothing. That is the guarantee and the promise of every other religion in the world because no sum of earthly good works can ever pay their way up to God, simply speaking. Because of our sins and our eternal separation from God by our rebellion against God is not something that man could pay on our own. But whereas every other religion says, work harder, try harder, do more, Scripture tells us God had a plan from the very beginning. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 6, God has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, it says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Jesus, brothers and sisters, you and I have redemption through his blood by his substitute death. The forgiveness of our sins and our trespasses as his own life was the payment for our sins. Jesus died on the cross and was buried three whole days, but Jesus didn't remain dead in the grave in our worshiping and remembering him today. We don't praise a dead God, you see. We worship the resurrected king who is alive and sits right now this moment on the throne of heaven, reigning over the universe as king of kings and lord of lords, now and for all of eternity, because God raised Jesus, defeating sin, Satan, and death forever to the praise of God's glory. This is why all who hear his voice and come to know this truth, God's truth, will know whether this teaching is from God or not, because God himself draws his own to himself through Christ. So if you hear his voice today, praise Jesus, who is the Christ who came to reveal God's glory. If you're not a Christian here today, or not sure that you are, we're so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for coming. You could be anywhere on a Sunday afternoon, but you chose to be here by God's grace. This is an invitation for you. This is God's way of revealing himself to you. Strive for your salvation no more. Work for your peace no more between God. Work for your righteousness no more. Jesus Christ came for you to reveal to you the truth of God's glory. Repent of your sins today. Believe that Jesus is the Christ of God. Trust him with your whole life this very moment. If you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, I would love to talk to you at the close of service. I'll be standing at the back door. Pastor Jeremy will be standing at the entrance door. We would love to talk to you more about how you can live your life for Jesus. And dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you, the important teaching and application in these verses. The Christian life is not about you. The Christian life is not about you. God knows that you have all sorts of hurts. God knows that you have all sorts of problems and worries. 
and anxieties and diagnoses and issues and concerns and weaknesses and fears. Yet even Jesus, who is the only one who's ever lived the perfect sinless life, whose life was full of hatred, loneliness, persecution, and misunderstandings and constant death threats, knew his life was not to be lived for his own glory. The purpose of Jesus' mission on earth isn't to make your life on earth perfect. The purpose of this corporate body isn't to meet all your needs. There is not a single perfect person in this church, including myself. There's not a single person in this church body who isn't weak and doesn't need care and love and a listening ear. Yet we have a Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Amen? We know a Savior who has given us all we need for life and godliness. And that is the truth. So ask yourself this afternoon, how are you living to reveal God's glory? How are you contributing your time, your care, your finances to lift up the name of Jesus and glorify God through this church body? How are you considering you can be used for the betterment, for the encouragement of others to reveal God's glory in your life? Verse 18 says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. This verse simply means how you live your life and seek his glory, God's glory, reveals whether you are the real deal or not. This was clear of Jesus' enemies, was it not? We read that they were seeking their own glory, hence hating and wanting to kill Jesus. So then... My question for you is, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a seeker of his glory? Or are you a hypocrite, a seeker of your own glory? I want to encourage you, if you are a professing Christian today, how you may cling to and surrender to Christ, who is God's glory. Point number four, why is Jesus the truth? Fourth and finally, Jesus is the Sabbath in whom we can rest in God's law. Look at verse 19 and 20. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Let me summarize this section simply for you. Jesus' marvelous teachings in the previous verses again has drawn another crowd. All those who are gathered for the feast and the Jewish leaders in the temple have all gathered. And Jesus corrects their misunderstanding of the law of the Old Testament scriptures because of their failure to see the arrival of the Messiah. These people were supposed to be God's very own. These teachers of the law were supposed to be teachers of God's book. Yet Jesus' charge against them was piercingly salient. None of you keeps the law. None of you keeps the law. You say you know the scriptures, yet it's very clear you don't. What piercing words for us even today, for you and me. So many Christians who claim to know the words of God, yet never study or read God's word. Who never show up to Bible studies, or community groups, or discipleships, ever. Don't get confused over my words or see them as accusatory. Please, don't. I say this out of love in in the truth of God's word. If we do not regularly read or study God's word, what does that make of us? What does that say of us? And besides, I'm not doing this to guilt you into reading and studying your Bibles. Uh, And even if I am, as a pastor, this is the one thing I don't feel bad about, to guilt you into reading and studying the word. But here's the point. Jesus proves they had no understanding of God's coming Messiah. They had no sense of God's promised plan of redemption through Christ. Isn't there 
a response so painfully realistic and relevant in how people today respond to criticism and truthful, loving accusation? Right? Look at verse 20. The crowd answered, You have a demon to Jesus. Who is seeking to kill you? See, instead of repenting, their natural reaction was what? Biting back. Counterattack on Jesus. You have a demon. How dare you? Imagine calling Jesus, the purest man to ever live on earth, a demon. And see how they lied straight through their teeth. Who's trying to kill you? Who's trying to kill you? When it was all known throughout all the country, all the nation, that they were seeking to kill Jesus. Brothers and sisters, how do you respond to truthful and loving criticisms? Do you make it about yourself? Do you consider the weighty, loving words of a brother or sister? Or are you quick to counter-accuse? Or are you quick to blame them back? I truly believe the two best ways Christians can grow in maturity and in sanctification is first, of course, to submit to the Word of God and to allow the Spirit of God to bring us conviction for faith and repentance, as well as subjecting ourselves to the discipling relationships where we can be held accountable. To receive loving encouragement and truthful feedback for our growth and maturity, and what can be better than that? It's simple. The question for you, the challenge for you is, do you invite others to speak into your life, or do you not? Do you have mature, godly believers, brothers and sisters, who know you well, who love you well to speak God's truth to you? Do you or do you not? I believe these words are piercingly poignant to emphasize the point that we need one another. Let me quickly wrap up by drawing your attention to the final verses, verses 21 through 23. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Jesus was simply pointing out their hypocrisy, accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath and them performing circumcision on the Sabbath. Straightforwardly and plainly put, they did not see, they could not see that Jesus was the Sabbath, that Jesus was the Lord of Sabbath and whom gives us rest in God's law. They didn't understand Deuteronomy 27, 26, which says, Cursed be anyone who does not do all the words of this law by doing them. Jeremiah 11, 3, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. Ezekiel 18, 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the Father as well as the souls of the sons is mine. The soul who sins shall die. You see, only in Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is the promised Messiah, who is the Christ, who came to do the Father's will, who came to fulfill God's mission, who came to reveal God's glory. Only in Him is there rest for our souls. Rest from works in God's laws. Because only in Jesus were all of God's laws fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, this is the reason why reading the Bible through the lens of Christ is so necessary. This is the reason why we kicked off Sunday seminars with this important class, Biblical Theology, because it's so important for you to learn and grow in so that you will learn to read, know, and believe in Scripture in its right context. This is why we aim to preach God's Word expositionally. There are so many people today, brothers and sisters, who claim to be Christians, yet their lives are completely off. Their lives completely testify of what they are not because they simply do not know God's truth. They simply do not study God's Word. So many people today get caught up in endless myths and controversies and philosophies which are detrimental to the soul, 
because they do not know how to rightly interpret scripture. Flat earthers being one of the groups who claim their knowledge of the Bible informs their convictions about their belief in the flat earth. Brothers and sisters, may we be a people who know God's truth, who love God's truth, who live God's truth, because we are a people who know Jesus and what he came to do. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that every promise of your word has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we thank you for the opportunity even this afternoon, whereas every other religion preaches, try harder, do more, get better. Father, Christianity preaches that the Savior of the universe has come, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the living God, has obtained righteousness on our behalf. Father, what can we do but to surrender to you with our hands lifted high, with our eyes lifted on you, depending on and leaning on one another for you to carry us and persevere us and hold us to the end. Help us to do that with joy, we pray. Father, we pray that you'll bring us conviction if we have been selfish to seek our own glory even in this body for more understanding from others, for more sympathy from others. Help us to not look to ourselves, but look to Christ who is our all in all, who has given us every spiritual blessing, who has given us all that we need for life and godliness. Help us to look to you. Help us to treasure you. Help us to lift you up. Help us to reveal your glory in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray.